Welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Adi Ray, Assistant Scientist at the Legacy Research Institute. Dr. Adi Ray is a translational neuroscientist known for her extensive expertise on cannabis. She is an assistant scientist at Legacy Research Institute and adjunct faculty at Washington State University. Her multifaceted research ranges from synaptic physiology to clinical pharmacology. Her focus is pain management, abuse liability, and harm reduction. Adi has published in top academic journals under the surname Wilson Poe, and she is passionate about the interaction between cannabis and opioids. Adi serves as the vice chair of the Oregon Cannabis Commission, and she is a longstanding member of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. Today, we'll be discussing Adi's background, knowledge and research surrounding cannabis aroma, how the industry's laser focus on THC percentage is decreasing the value of cannabis for patients, and more. Let's jump right in and expand our Noid knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adi. It's certainly a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So we like to start our episodes with some background for the listeners. Um, Can you just kind of share your cannabis origin story? How did you get to to where you are now? And did you think this is where your career would lead you? Absolutely. So, you know, I was always interested in the way people think and behave. And when I was getting my uh, psychology degree, my bachelor's, um, I initially thought that I would end up studying drug abuse. Um, I was really interested in, you know, substance misuse and what is it about certain substances that are more compelling than others. And I started, um, I I job shadowed a guy who was a substance abuse counselor. And at the very end of the day, when we were sitting down to dinner and debriefing, I just broke down in tears. Like, how on earth can you possibly do this job every day? I do not have the emotional constitution to be a substance abuse counselor. But luckily, at the same time, I was taking undergraduate courses in neuroscience as a part of my psychology degree. And that that course really clicked for me. I was that annoying kid, like raising my hand every five minutes. And and in one class, I had the guy next to me got annoyed and turned to me and said, God, are you going to medical school or something? And I was like, no. (laughs) And then I was like, well, wait a second should I be? <laughs> so I, I talked to my professor and I started volunteering in a lab and that lab happened to study opioids and, and morphine tolerance specifically. So why is it that the brain and body get used to the substance so that we need more in order to achieve that effect? So it was from that lab and, and you know, combined with all of my experience, you know, job shadowing my, my friend who was in Vancouver, B.C., And, you know, when I was spending that time in Canada, you know, cannabis had been decriminalized there for a very long time. And so although a lot of his clients, you know, were using opioids and and other substances, everyone was smoking weed. And so, you know, kind of piecing together what I was learning in my psychology courses, my pharmacology courses in the lab, you know, my experiences, you know, in my life. Um, I knew that these two classes of drugs, cannabis and opioids, were both pain relievers. To some extent, they could both be abused. And what exactly was happening in the brains of people who were using them at the same time? So right there as an undergrad, I developed a hypothesis that if you can use these two things together, then um, they might have either additive or synergistic effects. And that basically means that you can Um, combine them, their effects combine so that you need lower doses of each of them in order to achieve the desired effect. And, you know, that's really never changed. I'm still studying that hypothesis today in the lab. Um, You know, we've, we've done a lot of different experiments and addressed that problem from many angles, both in animals and in people. Um, but, but the, the fundamental principle is the same that, you know, we can rely less on opioids if we learn how to use cannabis wisely. Um, and no, I did not think that this was where I was going to end up. Like I was this like straight edge, hardcore punk rock kid, super anti beer. And, you know, like there's just, there's no way that I could have predicted that this is where I would have been. 
That's such a cool story. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, cool. So let, let's let's jump in. Uh, you recently co-authored a published paper in the journal Psychoactives titled The Nose Nose, Aroma But Not THC Mediates the Subjective Effects of Smoked and Vaporized Cannabis Flower. So we'd like to dive into the research involved in this work. Uh, but And the title gives a solid idea of the takeaway. But how did this research start? And, and how did you link up with the other four authors? Yeah, so I guess it makes sense to tell that story kind of chronologically, which is in 2017, I was invited to give a keynote lecture at a cannabis competition in Portland, Oregon called the Cultivation Classic. Um, and it was it, when I arrived and I met the team and I saw what was happening here in Portland, I was absolutely blown away. And I approached the, the directors of the cup afterward and said, this is amazing. You guys are amazing. How can I be more involved? And so some of the folks who were involved were um, Stephanie Barnhart, most importantly. She's the you know competition director and, and event producer. She's an absolute powerhouse. Um, and our other co-authors were Jeremy Plum and Jeremy Sackett. So Jeremy Plum is a, a well-known cannabis breeder and, um, and cultivator. And Jeremy Sackett is an absolutely stellar sort of pharmacist turned analytical chemist guru. Um, and so I, I met all those folks in 2017. And, you know, we started looking at the cup very differently, right? A lot of other cannabis cups, even today, are, are not very formal in their processes for uh, or their methods for quantifying the, um, the winners, right? It's kind of scale of one to 10, which one is best. And, you know, it's an overwhelming amount of samples and it's a super short period of time that the judges have to assess those samples. So it's not exactly very objective. So, <laughs> so, you know, when I came in, I, I, we all worked very closely together, you know, huddled together around conference tables and over, you know, weekend retreats, trying to think of the best ways to, to more formalize this process of quantifying um, and identifying truly objectively outstanding flower. That was really important to us because the Cultivation Classic was um, highly centered around craft cannabis producers using organic-like cultivation methods. And it was extremely important to celebrate craft cannabis. Um, and so it was extremely important to us that when we handed a trophy to someone on stage, that they would accept it and the entire world would know they really earned it. So from that rigorous place of quantifying the effects of cannabis, it was also really important that we protect the identities of all the judges and all the people who are competing. Um, and so when we did all the data collection, of course, it was double blind. So our judges didn't know what they were consuming. And when I was analyzing the data, I didn't know what samples they were consuming either, nor did I ever know who the people were because we designed the entire thing to be completely anonymous. It was only at the very end when all the data was analyzed that we finally unblinded to see who actually the winners were. Um, and, and what was really interesting is then at the, at the end of this process, after doing this cup for several years, we had this huge database of anonymous information about the subjective effects of cannabis in healthy people. And so that's when a cannabis cup turned over to become a research project. And the way that we did that was I basically handed the entire data set to a colleague of mine, Shaban Demerol, who's also one of the authors on the study. Um, and Shaban took all the data. He was not affiliated with the cup at all. He had no involvement in the data collection or the tools used to collect it. So just handed it over to him and said, hey, Shaban, what do you see here? And so, you know, it was from that place that although, you know, myself and Jeremy and the other Jeremy, you know, we had a lot of involvement in the, the methods by which the data were collected. You know, we were very divorced from, you know, how all of the data was analyzed and visualized in those figures that ended up in the paper. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, what's also fascinating about it is that, you know, we've, we've often, a, a handful of colleagues have hit us up afterward and said, hey, how did you find the money to do this? 
and we didn't. <laughs> it wasn't a funded project, right? So the cup itself, of course, you know, there were corporate sponsors who made the events happen and it was a huge community effort. You know, this brand contributes a couple of grand, this brand is a platinum sponsor and they sweep in with eight or 10 grand. And it was all literally pieced together through corporate sponsorships and, and donations essentially. And a lot of volunteer hours, right? You think about the people handing out lanyards when you walk in the door at a conference, those are all volunteers. So, you know, the way that this data came into the world was truly a collective effort. It was not some, you know, big, highly funded research project, you know, Shaban, I didn't pay him a dime for, for all the hours that he spent, you know, in his biostatistics world. So, um, so yeah, it really is, uh, it's kind of a miracle that it ever actually came to light. Did you have to share with any of the people that submitted for the cup that you were doing this or did they kind of, when they submitted to be in the cup, did it kind of like give their data over? But like blinded? Well, you know, what was interesting is that, you know, when we've, when, when this made the transition from we're using this data for the purposes of the cup, yeah, of course they had a privacy policy and, you know, our, our terms of use and all that. That was, you know, we collected all of the information digitally. So it was all, you know, standard, you know, web app data collection, privacy policy stuff. So yes, that was in, in place. But then when it came to turning over the data into a research project, we had no way to connect the two. So we, we, from the data itself, there was no way to know who it was that was involved and who provided those answers. So it wasn't really possible to reach back out to the community and say, hey, you know, thanks for your contribution, because we, we couldn't actually tell who they were. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> so, yeah, um, it, in a lot of, you know, if you take hospital data, for example, and then you're going to publish a bunch of hospital data, you know, the hospital knows who those people are. And so, of course, the research protocol is to go back and, and notify those people. And of course, you know, when they come into the hospital in general, they have to tick a box that says, yes, I know I'm, I'm engaging in research. Um, but this is an incredibly unique situation because it's not technically human research because it's anonymous. That's a, that's a big dividing line in, you know, uh, research ethics is, if it's anonymous, my IRB says we don't even need to look at your protocol because it's anonymous. Hmm. That's really interesting. So did anybody, well, did anybody come up to you afterwards and like knowing that they had submitted and were they kind of like surprised? To yes. I have that? met one patient afterward who came up and said, I was a judge in cult classic and I read the paper. This is so cool. And they were incredibly <laughs> appreciative and they were so grateful that they were contributing to something bigger you know, when we were training judges during the cups, we, we could say, hey, you know, like you're you're really contributing to something unique and important in the world. And when we had those conversations, we envisioned it might be possible one day to do that kind of publication. But it was like kind of outside the realm of possibility at the time. We we're just trying to get the cup done. <laughs> so <laughs> so to, you know, have those ideas and talk to our judges about, you know, the, the potential contribution to something much greater than themselves to actually see that that really was possible and it came true. is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so this might be more about like setting up things for the cup, but can you explain your methodology for collecting and analyzing experiential data from volunteers? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, we developed a custom software that, um, you know, was, uh, just a, a web-based application, just a website, essentially. Um, and in order to keep things anonymous, you know, we gave every judge, you know, in their judge kit, they got um, uh, a, uh, a login and a password, right? So coming into judge training, there's a, a big table full of bags. A judge randomly picks one up. And so we have no idea to know which samples were in that bag or which judge gets which bag. Um, and so in that way, it was incredibly random and, um, you know, again, like I mentioned, double blind. Um, so that's really important because it completely um, removes any source of bias that either the people analyzing the data or the people, you know, um, reporting the data would have. So, you know, this is one of the major problems with a lot of the cannabis cups where they have manufactured products. So the manufactured product, like a topical or an edible, it's incredibly difficult to blind them because packaging, you know, 
and the, and the, the form factor gives it away, right? It's very obvious when you're, when you're eating, um, you know, a peak chocolate or something. Right. So, so, you know, in that sense, it, we, uh, were able to, you know, conduct it in a double blind fashion because flour is really easy to blind, right? So they just mm -hmm. have a, a little glass jar from Sona Packaging. And, you know, on that glass jar, there's a four digit code and that four digit code corresponds to, you know, the, their survey answers. So, you know, at the end, what's also different about the data collection is that, you know, each judge gets about 10 samples in their kit and then they have 30 days to go through 10 samples. So if you ask a judge, you know, who's been in some of the other bigger cups, other places in the country, you know, they go through a hundred to 300 samples, maybe in a weekend. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's always my question. I, whenever I go to some cups, I'm, I talk to the judges. I'm like, how do you do all these samples in two days? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you, you, you how do you, block overlap like the, there's cross-contamination just inherent there exactly and another thing we we asked our, our our volunteers our judges to do was to take a tolerance break before they started their kit so we know that you know someone's level of tolerance greatly influences you know their perception of the effects of thc and um, so it was important to us to see if we could at least try to get folks to some relative baseline um, and we report in the paper, you know, 86% of people actually did that, you know, because we have timestamps on the surveys. We know when you start your kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so it was really important to us that people have time to mindfully pay attention to the effects that each individual sample had on their, you know, consciousness. And, you know, uh, uh, there were lots of questions from our judges. Oh, should we do it at a certain time of day? Because we know there might be circadian effects on the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, no, we're just, this is a naturalistic study. If we want to translate these results to what we see in the real world, in the real world, people consume cannabis at all times of day, whether they're parents or not, whether they're medical patients or not. And so, you know, we really, tr it, as, a, as a bench scientist, it's, it's really difficult to let go of all of those variables. But that's the nature of the world, right? Like we have to, we have to measure what, what people are doing naturally. That was really important to us. So yeah, double-blinded web-based application that we specifically designed to assess lots of different parameters, right? So effects on mood and um, how outgoing people felt and, you know, there's sort of relaxation states and all the things that cannabis is well known for. Um, but importantly, we also gave them, you know, an opportunity to report qualitative things like their tasting notes or, you know, um, just other general observations. And man, we've never published any of that qualitative, you know, commentary, but there are nuggets in there, you know, like judges talking about, oh, I could feel every ray of sun on my skin and you know, I'm so connected to my blueberries. And it's just like, <laughs> there's just so much cool stuff in that qualitative, you know, open field data. Uh, did, that's great. Did they get enough samples that if they wanted to try it at different times of day, they could like enough Indeed. of a sample? Yeah. So we, we found that, so this is also reported in the paper. So they got at least a gram, if not more. And most judges, you know, consume like a, 0.1 or 0.25 grams, you know, in a single session. And we didn't discourage um, repeated measures. So statistically, what that means is same person, same sample multiple times, right? Mm -hmm. So we didn't discourage that. If people had time to do that, yeah, go for it. And we had some like super amazing judges who would smoke it and vaporize it. So, you know, we didn't have enough of those folks to really, you know, conduct a meaningful analysis of what are, what's the difference between smoked and vaporized within the same person. But yeah, we had, we had tons of people who were able to, you know, conduct more than one um, analysis or one, more than one session in the same sample. That's cool. Yeah. But it's very we cool. also, it's, this might be important for your stats nerds out there. We also accounted for that. So we used a specific um, statistical model, the generalized estimating equations model in the data analysis to account for the fact that some people did consume the same sample more than once. Nice. Yeah, right. I could see how that might, if not accounted for, that that could put extra weight in one direction or another on on in on in a that grouping. On one sample. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, you're right. 
Yeah. So, um, can, did you, did you have any unexpected findings Were were, were there revelations that you yeah. uncovered? Um, one of the most surprising things that we found was that, you know, when we broke up, so we, we, um, developed a little formula or algorithm to, um, to quantify enjoyment or appeal. Um, and when we broke up the appeal scores by age brackets, it was really surprising to us that our oldest judges enjoy cannabis the most. And so it, you know, after we sort of, uh, found that preliminary data, the, the next year that we did the competition, we took a data-driven approach saying, okay, well, if our oldest judges enjoy cannabis the most, then we clearly need an, a, new award category, a new award category, and that was the Silver Fox, right? And so the Silver Fox Award was given to the cultivator who grew the flower that our, you know, um, our, our, most, um, our, our oldest judges appreciated the most. That's that's really cool, and and it's always great to see taking uh, taking a finding and immediately turning it around and and utilizing it. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, the words data driven get thrown around like Silicon Valley, you know, buzzwords, <laughs> but it, they really have meaning, and it means letting the data tell you what to do, and that's exactly yeah. what we should be doing. Ha- have so you said you you custom authored the the web app that you collected all this uh data on have you tried or been approached by other competitions uh to utilize it elsewhere you know we have not we we're really great friends with some of the bigger cups in southern california and we have a lot of mutual respect you know we've spoken on one another's stages but there's just never been the opportunity to deploy it in to actually make it go. Yeah, we, we have also been approached by, you know, cups in Canada. Um, part, part of the reason that things get hung up is number one, what we did would have been exorbitantly costly if we weren't doing it for free, right? So for someone else to say, hey, can we come in and pay you? They really can't afford us. <laughs> you know, there were like thousands of hours of blood, sweat, and tears that we volunteered to pour into this. And, you know, as much as we love it, it's unsustainable to do that time and time and time and time again. So number one, it's really expensive. And frankly, the cannabis industry is bleeding and we don't, we don't need to take any more money out of our, you know, cultivators pockets to pay us to do fancy science, right? Let's, let's pay our mortgages and keep our farms first. So number one, it's costly. Number two, it, we kind of ran into the pandemic and then the whole globe shifted and, you know, it, things are very different. Um, what has happened is, you know, we've used the software for a couple of smaller R&D projects. So, you know, we'll work with a brand to say, oh, you want to figure out which dose of your edible to go to market with. Well, great. Let's do a dose response blinded in volunteers and see which dose they like the best. So we'll calculate the most enjoyable dose instead of arbitrarily deciding that it's 10 milligrams. Thank you, Oregon. Um, And then, you know, we'll use science to tell us what our customers are most likely to enjoy. So, so yeah, we've used the software for a number of, you know, um, little R&D projects like that. Ultimately, it would be really useful on every consumer package for, you know, every cannabis product everywhere. Granted, you know, that's not, that's open label. Um, market research. It's not the same thing as, you know, double blind scientific um, study. Um, But, you know, it's still, it would still be really valuable to say, how does this actually make people feel? And then, you know, create an intelligent supply chain around actual consumer feedback. Do you have any plans to continue with this research that you already published? Or are you going to publish any additional work related to it? Yeah, actually, so some, I can't say a whole lot about it because we're still putting the pieces together, but I have been having conversations with the Global Hemp Innovation Center at at Oregon State University. Um, And I've, um, you know, identified a couple of experts in analytical chemistry, flavor chemistry, and, um, you know, the sort of sensory sciences coming from the hops world. And so we're, we're in the process of piecing together the next step in this study. So, you know, this first study told us 
aroma is important and that's pretty much it, right? <laughs> yes, of course, there are incredibly, you know, earth shattering implications from that finding, but it's, it's a relatively straightforward finding that aroma is the most important criteria when determining the quality of cannabis. But it didn't say which aromas are there or, you know, how loud were those aromas, how pungent. Um, so there's a lot of other, you know, uh, follow-up work that needs to be done. So, 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 you know, we're, we're trying to get a lot more resolution on those other components of aroma, not just it's important, but what smells good, what smells are there, how intense are those smells, you know, and, and all of that is using, um, you know, evidence to add value to cannabis and hemp products so that we have an intelligent way to communicate with them about each other. Um, and, and when I say we communicate, I'm talking about consumers talking to their salespeople, salespeople talking to the wholesalers and the cultivators, all of those folks interfacing with, you know, regulators so that we have, you know, some evidence-based way um, to, to talk about the critically important component of cannabis aroma. Yeah. Great. So in, in the data collection, did you ask the, the farmers, the cultivators to provide harvest dates? Were you able to collect the actual age of the samples? Yes. Yeah. We have harvest date. We've never really, um, so the, the way that the competition is timed, we intentionally, you know, ask for people to submit their samples pretty much January 1st, which is when they're done curing from the outdoor harvest. Right. So this, this cup was built to celebrate cannabis, craft cannabis in Oregon. And so, you know, the, the, the sample, um, analysis, you know, started in January for that reason. Now, of course, there's lots of indoor flowers and they may have been harvested, you know, long before October. Um, but yeah, for every single sample that came into the competition, there was a OLCC licensed lab that did the compliance certificate of analysis. In addition to that, we kind of said, okay, it passed. This is a, this is a, a viable sample for the Oregon market. Now we're going to do our own analysis. So we sent every sample to a second lab and had them do all of the cannabinoid and terpene analysis so that we had an apples to apples comparison for all of the analytes. And there are about 55 of them total. That was really important to us because, you know, we know about interlab differences in, you know, test results and, and sample preparation protocols. And, and it was extremely important to us that we were looking at, you know, apples to apples comparison when it came to the chemistry. Something else that we've never published is that, you know, if we looked at our set of COAs from the one lab and compared that to the compliance certificates of analysis, they are very different. And we could see systematically that there were at least one or two labs in Oregon that were hyperinflating THC values in particular. Their CBD values were on par with our, you know, R&D lab, but the THC values were 100% of the samples were um inflated that's uh not surprising but <laughs> it, but interesting especially i think the the fact that the other analytes don't did not appear elevated just the thc because uh, there, there's lots of ways for labs to put their thumb on the scale and one of them is kind of turning up the gain on everything so everything ranks higher uh but that does not appear to be what you saw so it was selectively thc that the numbers had the greatest variability so you know this is this is probably a phenomenon that your listeners are very familiar with right thc potency inflation so i look at potency inflation in two ways one is that genuinely yes people are breeding plants to be stronger and stronger and that is because of the monetary value of thc right and so the other thing is, well, if there's a higher monetary value of THC, then let's falsely inflate those THC numbers. So there's true inflation and then there's false inflation, essentially. And both of those things are happening at the same time. How do you yeah. think that that impacts patients? You know, this is this is the crux of the deal, right? This is the most important thing that that your listeners could take home is that 
let, let's back up and, and think about what the market looked like in 2016 in Oregon before adult use legalization happened. What it looked like was medical patients had access to a variety of cannabis products, some of which had two to one ratios, THC, CBD, one to one, four to one, one to four, right? There's lots of different products out there because ultimately what most patients are looking for is relief from their symptoms without unwanted side effects. Now, if you're a relatively young person and you are, let's say a fibromyalgia patient, right? Chronic pain, and you still need to go to the office and you need to be able to perform, you need to you know, dial down your symptoms in a way that still allows you to be functional, which means you can't be high at work, right? So what happened when adult use legalization came on and, you know, all of the adult use consumers were essentially shopping for THC, how much THC can I get for the lowest price? It's essentially the name of the game right now as it has been, you know, since legalization happened. And this is not just an Oregon phenomenon. This is coast to coast. This is Canada, right? This is what happens. There is a race to the top with THC and a race to the bottom with the price. And so what happened was that all of those diverse products that worked for different kinds of people with different chronic issues, they started to disappear from the market because the cultivators of those products saw how much more money they could be making if they just grew stronger weed. And you know, I have a lot of compassion for all of those extremely hardworking cultivators and manufacturers who are in that difficult position of being taxed at a 60 to 70 percent, you know, effective rate, who are desperate to, you know, pay their bills and, and make payroll. Right. I, I can completely understand why it is that you would need to make as much money as you can. But the unintended side effect is that, you know, the the product choices narrowed for our patients. And finally, we're seeing some really elegant studies come out of Canada, which demonstrate this very, very nicely, that what happens when those product choices are narrow, medical patients do one of two things. They either start buying products in the recreational market and suffering the negative consequences of using those products that aren't suitable for them, right? So they suffer through those um, unwanted effects, like the intense impairment, um, in order to relieve their effect of their uh, symptoms. Or the other thing they do is they just go back to the black market. You know, we've seen this, uh, there's just a paper that came out like a couple of days ago demonstrating this very elegantly. Um, so, so, you know, the whole point of legalization in Oregon and most other states was so that medical patients could have lab tested products so that they could reduce their risks and improve their symptoms. And now we're in a situation where all of that has gone out the window and they've just gone back to the black market because they can't get the products they need in the legal market. So it really is fundamentally about a narrowing of product choices that are medically relevant. Yeah, and I think unfortunately, what we've seen is that adult use legalization is, has been interpreted by by governments by municipalities as serving everyone and that the step of the medical market was just this kind of like side door to to open up for adult use and the medical programs get forgotten people leave the medical programs there's the they're not given any attention. I see it happening here in New York now, uh, where the medical program was put together wrong in the first place, and now it is truly being left behind. And you have, uh, it, it, in the medical program here in New York, they are not allowed to share the terpene values. They're, they're tested. They are tested for terpene profile, but they are not allowed to share that information with the patient. The, the potentially one piece of information that that might actually direct a, a yeah. product selection. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, you know, our data in this paper told us that, you know, the at least the total terpene expression, how much, how terpy 
was unrelated to enjoyment. Now, that's not to say that terpene expression may not in some way be related to symptom relief or some other parameter of the human experience. But what we found was that the aroma, specifically the person who is about to use the flower, smells the flower, right? That That's the critical component. That that is the evidence that we're presenting, that this is the number one criteria that a human needs to make a buying decision. They have to be able to smell the flower in order to predict whether or not it's going to work for them. So there's that component. But then if you talk about this larger phenomenon of, you know, patients kind of being left out of the conversation, um, let's, let's talk for a moment about what might happen with federal legalization, right? So the PREPARE Act right now, the way it's structured they want to take, um, you know, they want to be advised by the alcohol and tobacco industries about how do we build a framework for legalization, you know, nationwide. So they're going to use alcohol and tobacco as as a, as a template for what to do with cannabis in the United States. And if if we do that, then it's 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 going to be this problem of the medical you know, the, the recreational tail wagging the medical dog at a very, very grand scale. Yeah. So I'd love to know more about how we can change things, especially in states or potentially when federal legalization comes under the paradigm that, that you've just described at where there's all these closed container laws. Most mm-hmm. states require the the product that is going on the shelf to be individually packaged in eighths or halves or, or you know, full ounces, however it is. Uh, and that's what goes to the lab for testing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, our evidence would say, don't do that. <laughs> don't prepackage, <laughs> right? Let let the consumers stick their nose in an ounce, right? Um, and you know, if we if you do have to get stuck with prepackaged products, then you've got to create some other workaround by which a consumer can come in and smell every product. That should be a fundamental consumer right, right? That is an evidence based practice. And if you're not doing that, then you're not doing. You don't have evidence based policy flat out. So consumers need to be able to smell the flower. Um, you know, if we're talking about fixing the larger problems of how do we insulate medical rights and medical needs from the capitalist pressures of the adult use market, you know, one thing in talking with cultivators, they want to grow for medical patients, but their hands are tied because they can't afford to, right? They have to be able to pay their bills. So what do we do with corn farmers and soybean farmers and, you know, all of these other farmers who create are creating staple crops for us that were, are, you know, otherwise not very high value products. We give them subsidies. We pay farmers to grow products that we need. So that's what we need. We need subsidies to cultivators so that they can know that they don't have to worry about paying their bills. They have a contract for the entire season or maybe five or 10 seasons knowing that they are taken care of while they are taking care of the patients. So we would we'd go a long way using maybe some of our tax revenue instead of on law enforcement that we would pay people to cultivate medicine. Um, you know, the other thing we could do is if we look at, you know, flour is a pretty unstable product. So, you know, if we, for example, if we, if we cultivate too much of it, what are we going to do? We already have enough of an oversupply problem. You know, we can do what the Canadians do with maple syrup, you know, make it into a shelf stable product like a tincture and keep barrels and barrels and barrels of it in a warehouse and then trickle it out to the patients so that there is a constant price, right? A fixed price, just like there is with maple syrup. There's like a whole documentary about this. It's like fascinating. If you just imagine every one of those maple syrup barrels full of cannabis tincture, stabilize the economy, stabilize the market shelf-stable products, shelf-stable medicine for people. 
Um, and let's put some of those products in the places where patients are, right? Like let's have a rural distribution center. Let's have couriers, you know, we're state employees whose job it is to go deliver medicine to people. So, you know, there, there are lots of ways that we can, you know, create a better system that insulates medical need from the pressures of capitalism. It seems like you've thought about this a little bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I, I'd like to, to circle back around to the more of your background and, and opiates and opioids and the, the complement between cannabis and opioids, um, for, uh, is it, does this pairing work for all pain? Does it work for, uh, better for acute pain conditions versus chronic pain conditions? Is, is there, a magic ratio? Are there other things that I'm not thinking of that that you could speak to? Yeah, I mean, those are all excellent questions. And the fact of the matter is, they're nearly impossible to answer at the moment, because it's not legal to do phase three clinical trials with cannabis in the United States. So if we had some federal reform that would you know, drop those research barriers, then we could answer all those specific questions. But conducting a controlled trial, an interventional trial, where you give a specific pain, you know, patient population, either acute pain or chronic pain, um, you know, this particular ratio versus that ratio, you know, those are interventional studies, which are basically impossible to do in the U.S. There's like a handful of back doors you could sneak in. Oh, let's combine uh, Epidiolex and Dronabinol. You know, those are two FDA approved medications that you could use in an interventional trial, you know, for people with, you know, chronic low back pain or something, right? But that that's like really a contorted research design, which by the way, is actually happening right now. Um, so number one, those are all incredibly valid questions. Number two, they're impossible to answer right now under our federal paradigm, but let's see what we do know, right? So what we know in general is that for most people, cannabis is both safe and effective for pain relief. For most people, it allows them to either con completely eliminate their use of prescriptions like opioids and benzodiazepines, or significantly reduce their doses. Now, there are conflicting papers out there. Some people find that in, at an epidemiological level, that rates of opioid overdose and rates of cannabis use are, are correlated. You know, yeah, but so is inflation. Inflation is also correlated with both of those things, right? So epidemiological correlational evidence doesn't really tell us a whole lot. What does tell us a whole lot is when you follow one patient and watch what happens to them, when they get access to cannabis. And, and this is true for people with chronic pain and for people who use drugs. So there's some really elegant work going on in Canada, Thomas Kerr's group at the University of British Columbia. They have worked with a population of largely unhoused people and people who use drugs in, in Vancouver, BC. And what we see in chronic pain patients is the exact same thing that, that they see by following those individual people over time, which is that people who use cannabis are less likely to end up in the ER compared to drug, you know, people who use drugs who don't use cannabis. So there's some sort of protective bubble that cannabis users get um, that keeps them from having a, an opioid overdose when they're using heroin or fentanyl. Um, we also know that when those folks get access to a medication like buprenorphine or methadone, so those are FDA approved medications to manage opioid withdrawal, to keep people, you know, get people on the road to recovery from, from opioid dependence. And so if you're on a prescription for methadone or Suboxone, that's um, buprenorphine, um, then if you're a cannabis user, you don't need as much. You can reduce your doses of Suboxone if you're also a cannabis user. And so we can think about cannabis not as the savior from the opioid crisis, but probably the most important tool we could use to give people uh, a coping skill 
as they're trying to wean themselves off of opioids and find alternative pain management you know, strategies. Um, the, the other thing that cannabis systematically does um, that opioids do not do is improve quality of life, right? So quality of life with, with opioid use goes way down. There's super gnarly side effects, even when we're not talking about, you know, a, dependence and abuse, you know, it causes gastrointestinal issues and constipation. And if you're, you know, if your 80 year old grandmother, you know, can't use the bathroom, that's potentially the biggest deal in her life. That is the worst quality of life issue for a lot of people. Cannabis doesn't do that. Right. Um, so there's, there's lots of things that cannabis does that opioids do not do. Um, and so thinking about, you know, at, at a at a patient level, um, what is going to work for you? And this is another thing that we don't do a lot of uh, with med- other medications. There's no other FDA approved drug that we say, "Hey, here you go, figure it out, use it." You know, until you feel side effects, and then you know, back off the dose. You know, and there's no other you know like self directed journey toward healing that that we do with with other you know medications. So that's really unique about cannabis. So, so kind of directly answer your question, which ratio is the best? The one that works for you, which product is the best? The one that works for you. How often do you take it? Whatever works for you, because it really is an individualized, you know, thing. All of our endocannabinoid systems are so different from one another. The other medications we're taking, how much sleep our brain naturally wants to get. You know, there's so many factors that could potentially influence what our daily needs and goals are that it's really not practical or possible to say, here you go, this is what works. Do you think some of this comes from the fact that most drugs interact with systems that do a thing or that control an area and the endocannabinoid system is really the the system that creates balance amongst everything else in the body? Evan, I think that's a really great hypothesis. You know, I, I think that it's absolutely true that, you know, it shouldn't be surprising to us that cannabis is so great for so many diseases and symptoms because the endocannabinoid system is everywhere, right? It has a hand in all of these homeostatic biological processes that keep our lives in balance. So I think you're onto something there. If only we could do some research. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's like greater acceptance now about the endocannabinoid system, like in general in the medical community than say like five years ago? Yeah. About the endocannabinoid system or about cannabis specifically? I mean, both, I guess. Yeah, I have definitely seen a huge shift in the conversations that I have on airplanes. So, you know, 20 years ago, when I was first starting this, I'd sit down next to a stranger and they'd say, hey, what do you do? Their response then is much, much different than it is now. (laughs) So, yeah, if that's a good gauge of where we are culturally, um, you know, yes, the, 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 medical acceptance of cannabis is totally different than it was 20 years ago. Now, in terms of the endocannabinoid system, we've still got a long way to go. We, there is very little structured education that our medical doctors get during medical school, either when it comes to the endocannabinoid system or cannabis in general. You know, I think that it's a little bit too early to tell, you know, how things have shifted in the last couple of years. But even, you know, in 2020, there were studies coming out that showed that, you know, 85% of medical residents never received a single moment of cannabis training in all of their education. That's a huge problem. And they know they're going into their jobs admitting, I am not prepared to write a, a card. I'm not prepared to engage with my patients about cannabis in any meaningful way. That's a problem. So, you know, we've identified that problem, which means that now we have the awareness required to fix it. So what I'm hoping is that, you know, the endocannabinoid system will be, you know, a huge part of the curriculum. And when we're talking about GI issues, you know, every chapter of the the medical residents, you know, life, there's a little bit of endocannabinology inserted into that. How does the endocannabinoid system, you know, relate to metabolic disorders? How does it relate to reproduction? You know, how does it relate to all of these systems and and homeostatic processes? So we've got a long way to go. And I, I think that, 
you know, training our medical professionals and giving them high quality continuing education is really critical. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Agreed. Agreed. And I think, you know, much of what we do know of the endocannabinoid system, uh, I believe, has been the subject of one of your co-authors' research, right? Dr. Ethan Russo has done quite a bit on on the ECS, is my understanding. Yeah. And, you know, if we look at Ethan's methods, he's an incredibly good archival researcher. So he is really good at scraping the bottom of the barrel when it comes to everyone else's publications and synthesizing all of that into a cohesive story. Um, And yes, he's incredibly well known for that. And I'm so, so grateful to call him a colleague and a co-author. You know, what Ethan does a little bit less of is, you know, fundamental studies in rodents in a lab, you know, watching what happens to these different components of the endocannabinoid system when we apply cannabinoids, right? So we, we do need both, you know, and we need clinical research, we need archival research, we need preclinical research, all of which are, you know, this is the process of science, all of the these disparate, you know, and, and different um, methods come together to tell a cohesive story about how important this system is in our health. Very well said. Yeah, definitely. So where do you hope to see the cannabis science community or the industry in general in the next five years? And what do you think it will take to get us there? Ah, the first part of that question is probably easier than the second. (laughs) Um, Where I hope to see us going is, you know, number one, I would hope that we start instituting evidence-based policy. But, you know, what is the likelihood of that happening? If we look at all other facets of our life and how legislators interface with all other facets of our life, we're real slow in this country. (laughs) So if we look at something like uh, opioid harm reduction, right? In this country, prescription heroin is like the most taboo, controversial thing you could possibly bring up. And yet it's standard practice in a lot of European countries in Canada. Safe supply. It's really easy. It's very effective. It keeps people from dying. And yet somehow we're resistant to keeping people from dying from a political standpoint. So, you know, my my hope is that at least at the state levels, and, and luckily we have a lot of interstate communication with associations like CANRA, the Cannabis Regulators Association, all of the disparate regulators in those different states are talking to one another about what should we be doing. So my hope is that, you know, at least at a state level, we can begin to have evidence-based policy. Um, You know, evidence-based healthcare, it it is always an ongoing thing, right? We learn new things in science all the time. And so also, you know, coming into this, understanding that it's going to be different in three years, everything's going to be different in three years all the time. So whatever, you know, new policies or educational materials, you know, built into the production of those new regulations and materials, we should also have a timeline for when they're going to expire and when we need to reassess. So that that's what I would hope is that we, you know, have evidence-based policy that doesn't stagnate. Um, you know, in terms of cannabis science, of course, what I'd like to see is more funding. And the way that we're going to unlock a lot more funding is by, you know, Uh, taking cannabis off the Controlled Substances Act. If we're able to study it in the same way that we study alcohol or tobacco or, you know, environmental, you know, poisons in the atmosphere, if we're able to study it as if it were any other substance, then we would have a lot more data to talk about. We would have a lot more uh, evidence-based policy to enact. So my hope is that, you know, federal legalization happens so that we can unlock a lot more research funding, eliminate all research barriers so that we can really start making sense and improve people's lives. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Um, Yeah. And, you know, one question that continues to, uh, you know, bother me or, or, or come back up is uh, how do we get information like what is contained in your paper that, you know, we need to be smelling this plant. How, how do we get that in front of the regulators? How do we present the, these facts with their, with their evidentiary backing 
to the decision makers. Um, yeah, I mean, and <clears throat> I can only speak for me personally what I'm doing, which you know I can't speak to what other scientists might be doing with their results, but that outreach component is incredibly important to me. So what do I do? The moment I know when that paper is going to be published, I call my PR department and I say, let's do a press release. The moment it's published, I send it to Earl Blumenauer and I send it to the OLCC and I send it to you know the OHA and I say, hey, look what you've got here. This is in your own backyard. Um, you know, I, uh, proactively reached out to Canra to say, Hey, I have some, you know, really interesting data to present has big implications for the medical market, you know? So I, I, I personally have a lot of engagement, but that's like, you know, I'm like a disciple for cannabis essentially, you know, that's like my, (laughs) my mission to go out and do that personally, because I have a moral imperative knowing this and having a contact and not sharing it with that contact would be wrong. So, you know, I can't speak to what other investigators or researchers would do, but it certainly feels important to me to to have this conversation today so that, you know, maybe one of your uh, readers is a regulator or knows a regulator or, you know, is in the position to to get the information out. So I can only do as much as I can do to, you know, um, to get the signal out, but all forms of amplification are welcome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's why we're doing this. Uh, scream, scream it from the rooftops. Yes. <laughs> and I, like I said, at the very top, I am very, very grateful for the opportunity to interface with you and your audience. Oh, I'm, I'm, I think we're both pretty grateful for the insights that, that you have generated here in this paper and that you continue to, to work on and, and produce. Thank you. Yeah. So um, uh, our our favorite question to end with is what are three books or studies that you'd like to recommend to people to expand their cannabis knowledge? Yeah. So there's one peer reviewed study. Um, it's a Canadian study called Lower Risk Cannabis Use Guidelines. And um, they made a a comprehensive update to it in 2017. They do this periodically, like every five years or so, they update these guidelines. It's a freely available publication. You know, the full text is available through PubMed online. And the the first author is Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. So lower risk cannabis use guidelines. Um, Just really sensible evidence-based stuff, right, for, for patients and caretakers and um, consumers and healthcare providers, just a, a fantastic peer-reviewed resource. Um, another one that I really love is um, it was a partnership between Health Canada and I think um, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, so these folks um, produced this really wonderful set of resources called Get Sensible. So if you go to GetSensible.org, these are all essentially. Um, uh, cannabis use guidelines for young people. So for, you know, um, people who are adolescents and young adults, especially, um, it's, it's kind of like the antithesis of dare, you know? So I, I grew up as a dare kid and, you know, for your audience who aren't familiar with that, you know, drug abuse resistance education is basically when police officers came into your school and scared you. Um, so this is the opposite of that. This is very practical, useful information. Again, there's a lot of evidence in there and there's, there's some self work and self reflection. That's a part of those resources. So yeah, getsensible.org. There's some fantastic stuff. If you're not a young person or you're not a teenager, go there anyway, because you will learn something and it's just beautifully produced and and a, a joy to read. Um, And then the last one is, it might seem a little bit out of left field, but it's Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. So um, that book is transformational in thinking about our relationship with all plants Um, and, you know, the relationship with the cannabis plant and everything that she has to teach us and um, our, our, both our rights and our responsibilities to that plant and to each other and to the planet. Um, it will, I guarantee that, you know, you can't read that book without tearing up. It's just so beautifully written. And there are so many, so many deep lessons to deepen our relationship with the cannabis plant and with our planet. 
Awesome. Thank you. Evan, did you have any other questions? Um, no, I don't, I'm not, I, I have plenty more questions for, <laughs> for 80, but I, I think that they, they will keep for another time. We, uh, I think, you know, we'd love to have you back here, uh, maybe after your next publication. Yeah. I, and I'm like, it may, it may just happen this harvest season. So it could be that in the spring, I've got some really cool data to share. So yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks for being with us today, Aidy. We appreciate all your knowledge and your passion to help educate the cannabis community. Yeah, thank you again for the invitation. It was really, really nice to chat with you.